Today on the Michael Brown Podcast, we have Eddie Franz. And uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, but know that today he is sharing his story. And he uh, it is a longer one, but I promise once you start, you're not going to want to stop. Uh, it gets pretty crazy along the way. And as we explain in this episode, it's like a roller coaster that you click to the top, click, 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 click click and then it just goes off the rails literally no roller coaster rails after that so let me tell you a little bit about eddie eddie's a dear friend and he's a wonderful human being who has an amazing story eddie was living in beaumont when he was arrested in 2005 for distribution of meth methamphetamine a few years into his 10-year sentence he said he felt something change about three years in he felt just he needed to stop he didn't want to go back to the life that put him behind bars so for the last four years, uh, he the last four years of this recording, he's run jail to jobs, Williamson County operations to convince offenders between the ages of 12, for the record, that's sixth grade. So from sixth grade up to the age of 24 to make the same decision he did and turn their lives around. Jail to Jobs is devoted to helping former inmates develop skills and acquire jobs as a way to end recidivism, which is the tendency of a convicted criminal to reoffend. Eddie's passion for this role is rooted both in his own experience as well as his faith. He's a husband, a father, who will likely make you smile and laugh anytime you talk to him. Please welcome my guest and my friend, Eddie Franz. Eddie, thank you so much for being on the Micah Brown podcast today. I know, we're, and we're gonna, I'm gonna ask about this in a little bit, but you had an event today. I imagine you're tired, but I'll let you answer for yourself. How are you feeling after that event? Yeah, so. And what was it, I guess, since I just said the event, you know, it's all. It, it was a volunteer work day for uh, okay. the organization I work for, Jail to Jobs, and we had volunteers from United Way come out. Uh, we had some of our own volunteers come out and some of the kids in our program came out and we um, really did a lot of outside yard work and beautification of our new reentry center, which we get to talk about later. But to answer your first question, it's kind of two parts. I feel worn out emotionally, but relieved yep. that it's done. <laughs> That's good. What about mentally? Cause I know there's, I'm, I'm not, nobody's being fooled here. Like it takes prep to then have chores done in this case, which is what they are. I mean, there are things that got to be done around the place. Right. And uh, you may not want to call them chores, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, we got to go clean up the bushes and, and then mow the lawn over here and then go paint this thing. Well, I, I always am concerned that like they seem kind of trivial sometimes. Right. But the volunteers actually love to see the results of a project um, to see it start and finish and something look good and be better. Um, but yeah, there was so much planning um, into like planning each project to make sure all the materials were there, that the right amount of people would be there, that we're not trying to utilize 82 different shovels to do something, right? Like we stagger the projects so that, you know, I don't have to go out and buy a shovel for everyone on the list. And so, yeah, yeah it's, a lot of, it's a lot of juggling, mental juggling. And yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted. Um, but it went really well. The volunteers had a great day. The kids got to interact with them and them with the kids. And, and I think that's, um, to me, what kind of separates our volunteer programs and volunteer days apart from others is that they get to hang out with the kids that are being served by this program. So that's kind of a really cool thing. 
I'm still stuck on the 82 shovels. So like, but, but think about it. Like, <laughs> but it is, it's a, cool a lot thing. of them require a shovel, right? And so if I don't stagger them a- appropriately, I have to go and buy dozens of shovels just to make sure everybody has one. Or we stagger them, plan it out appropriately, and we rotate the shovels. I'm just I'm just imagining you like rolling up through a, a Home Depot or a Lowe's or something and the, the cashier just looks at you. You look at them and, and just go, it's not worth it. <laughs> like just, just scan yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. There are 24 shovels here, yeah, I yeah. promise, but you, you can know, count actually them. I've done that like. with pavers, those little paving stones. That was I, I bought 45 of them today or yesterday. Yep. And um, they're all on a cart and the guy just goes, how many? And I said, 45. He goes, yep. Yeah, exactly. And I, I used to have like a side landscaping job that I've mentioned on this show a few times. And I've done the same thing where I just roll up one of those big like flat carts and they're like, are these all the same? Yes. How many are there? 92. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like just a dollar a piece. They don't even care. Yeah, exactly. Half of them will break before they no, get but I'm sold. feeling good, man. I'm excited. Yeah, right. I, I like to talk about myself. So this is going to be great. <laughs> The most honest statement from any American ever. <laughs> you just gotta own it sometimes, right? Like, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, so we're we're gonna be talking about you and what you do and get up all up in your business. So let's get after it. First thing, would love to know just a general background uh, about you, and you can be as specific as you want. Um, we're also gonna have the obstacle question come up in a second. So if you want to split those up great if you want to just knock them both out at the same time because it's part of your background go for okay. it yeah so um probably I, I guess the best way to start would be um i grew up with a mom and a dad and with the work that i do now like that that really shaped who i was um having both parents in the house um my dad worked a lot i would probably say 50 to 60 hours a week doing construction lots of different kinds of construction. And my mom was sometimes a part-time CPA, sometimes um, a stay-at-home mom, sometimes, you know, the, the owner of a store or a manager of a store. So she would do whatever was needed also. Um, and I remember real young um, wanting to be like my dad, right? Cause he was strong, he could build anything. He was great with tools, um, but he, you know, he, it's one of those things where he worked so much He'd get home at like six at night. We would eat dinner. He'd watch 30 minutes of television. He'd be asleep. And so like a lot of, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction between me and him. And on the weekends, he would go and play golf one of the days. And then the other days he would just spend watching football or golf. And so, you know, it, I wanted, I wanted more time with him. Right. And, and I remember growing up going, man, I don't want to be just like him. And um, I learned a lot of my work ethic from him. And, and my mom as well, um, but mainly from him because I just saw him work so hard uh, for the family and just destroy his body too. Like he's got two fake knees now, two big metal knees. Um, his shoulder and elbows are all messed up, um, but he broke himself for the family. Um, and I, would, I, I was telling the kid today, I was like, honestly, I would have rather had eaten crappier food and had more time with my dad, right? Because most of the kids in our program, they don't have, they don't have father figures at all. And I can kind of relate to what that feels like, even though I had one, right? Because there wasn't a lot of 
communication. There wasn't a lot of, you know, coming and watching me play sports or teaching me how to do anything. And um, I think real, real early that made an impression on me to, to try to impress him. Right. If that makes sense. Like I wanted him to take notice. Right. So I would literally practice at whatever I was doing until I got really good at it. And then I could go, Hey dad, look at this. Right. Problem was he'd look at it and be like, okay, great. I'm going back inside or I'm going back to work or whatever it may be. So I always felt kind of like that disconnect of I'm trying to impress you. Look at all this stuff that I'm doing to impress you. And um, I will say that emotionally it bothered me as a kid. But when you talk about what the results of me growing up like that were, it also instilled in me this, this drive to be good at things. Um, now, I, I, try, I try to be good at things to get people to pay attention to me, right? And so that's not necessarily healthy. You have, I had to deal with that as I grew older, but it did allow me to be pretty capable at a lot of things. Um, and that's, that's where I always tell people, I'm not great at anything, but I'm really good at a lot of things. Um, yeah. And, it, and, it, and it, it fits hand in hand with a, a small nonprofit that needs a Swiss army knife, right? They need somebody that knows how to hook up an IT system and build a, a gazebo, right? Like they need that. And so it, it benefited me in, in, in my professional career, but I would say that was probably the most defining kind of part of my background was growing up like that. Because I remember when I was 11, um, I asked my dad if I could go work with him in the summer when I was out of school. And we had this fence that went around the front yard, like a, a two by six fence, right? With the three, three flat pieces and then posts every so often. Yeah. And I remember sitting out there and he was sitting on the porch with his friends drinking. And it was like a Friday night. It was dark, getting dark. And I said, I was always the, the guy that, the kid that poured the beer for the, the dad and his friends, right? The like, servant, okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a servant. And, and as long as I didn't talk, they let me sit out there with them, right? So I was just like stonewalled. I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't move. Just go get the beer. <laughs> you just um, do your job. Do, I'll do my job so I can hang out. But I remember one time I said, Dad, I want to go working with you in the summertime. And all his friends were like, put the boy to work. Let him work. Let him make some money. It'll be Naturally. good for him. Yep. He's like, he's because I'm, I'm not a tall person. I don't know if you've ever noticed that about me, Michael. Um, <laughs> I, so I may have noticed it. <laughs> imagine me at 11, right? Like I was little bitty. Oh boy. It's skinny. And he, we're talking like going and, do, and framing houses and trimming houses. And my dad goes, he's too small. And I said, what do I have to do to go work? I want to go work. When can I work? He goes, well, I'll tell you what. If you can walk around the top of the fence all the way without falling off one time, I'll let you work. And I was like, really? I jumped off the porch, got on <laughs> the fence, <laughs> and I started walking. And, and I fell, and I'd walk a little bit further, and I'd fall. And all night long for like two or three hours, I'm doing this, and it's pitch black outside. And, and they're out there watching me walk on this fence. And uh, my dad's friends were saying, that boy ain't going to quit till he makes it. You know that, right? And I came home. I didn't make it that night. That next Saturday, that Saturday, the next day, I went out and I walked that fence for about five hours until I could do it. Because they had, they had these gates. There were three gates. And the gates were super shaky. 
So as soon as you sit on the gate, it starts doing like that. It starts going back and forth, and I would fall almost every time on the gates. Then I, I got better balance. And then Saturday night, him and his friends were on the porch again, and I said, hey, Dad, check this out. And I walked that fence. And he goes, Dang. <laughs> he goes, we're going to work 5.30 Monday morning. You better be up. And, and I worked with him from that time until I was 18. Every summer, Christmas break, spring break, I was working eight hours a day, five days a week with my dad um, in his, his construction company. That's incredible. So, so, but all of that was just to spend time with him. Right. Like, I was about to say it had nothing to do with actual work. No, like. I hated it. It, it was at an 11 year old kid. All I did was clean up their mess and sweep up the house, pick up the trash, run upstairs to go get nails and bring them downstairs to him and then run out to the truck and go get screws and then run back upstairs. That's all I did all day long. Um, but it was to spend time with him, you know, and, and that was to me like it was worth it. But like, that's, that's the thing that made me who I am today was that desire to be with him. Um, I would, I learned work ethic. I learned how to do a bunch of different things well to catch his eye. But ultimately I developed the skills to be um, someone, someone told me what this word was autodidactic, which is you're a self learner. Oh yeah. Yeah. You can teach yourself things. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the skill that, that has helped me be successful in the future. Um, there was just all that emotional baggage too, that came with that. Right. Um, and so, yeah, growing up, man, that, that was my background. I worked, um, we, we were never poor, but we, we didn't always have everything we wanted. Right. Um, but my, my parents worked their butts off to put food on the table and keep the lights on and, um, they, they loved each other and supported each other. Um, now, as, as it got along, my father developed like a drinking problem. And that was something that kind of affected not as much me, but my little sister, who was 11 years younger than me. That affected her quite a bit as she grew up with that. Right? We grew up with a dad that drank on the weekends and maybe a couple beers after work. She grew up with a dad that was like slamming fifths of bourbon in the car ride home you know Dang. so that's that's kind of her that was her life and that that kind of affected her quite a bit but us i was a little bit older and kind of doing my own thing already in high school and that kind of started to arise um and so that that was one of the the kind of the living conditions that we grew up in it was a a typical blue collar family you know um no, no abuse, no physical abuse, no mental abuse. My kid, I think my dad whooped me like full on whooped me like once or twice. Right. Like <laughs> I got the message. I was like, nope. <laughs> nope. And my I was mom saying that's all it took. <laughs> I don't, I can't remember my mom ever really spanking me outside of like being a two year old or whatever. Cause I don't remember any of that. But once I was old enough to remember, they, they, they talked about it. They disciplined well. Um, once the discipline was over, they would come and talk to us about why we had to be disciplined. And, you know, I always, I always took that as like, that's a really good skill to do. Like let, let the kid know you're not mad at them. You're really not. And you know, you just have, you're mad at that behavior or that yep. outcome. And so that I always took that with me and I, I try to do that with my kids today. I was going to say that's, I've got a three-year-old or three-nager as I call her. Yeah. And I do the exact same thing with her, man. I, uh, even this morning, 
um, she, uh, she yelled at her mom, my wife. And, uh, I had told her yesterday, if you yell at mommy again, there will be very severe consequences. And I walked out there and dude, as soon as she locked eyes with me, she knew what was going down. No, no. And I was like, did you, and just very calmly, did you yell at mom? Yeah. Did I tell you there would be consequences? (laughs) She's like shaking her head. She goes, yeah. (laughs) And I was like, okay, well, this is, this is happening because of your choice. It's not, I'm I'm not going to be angry at you. There's no malice behind this. Like you got to understand there are boundaries. Yeah. Well, I think one of the funniest things I've ever seen was when you posted her stuck in a chair. (laughs) That video is unbelievable because you called her out. You're like, yeah, you're not stuck. Are you? She's like, no. (laughs) Yeah. Called her out. Yep. She does that kind of stuff all the time. And she'll, she'll say like, you know, Hey, can you, I don't know something like, can you get back in your car seat? No, I can't do it. Or, you know, hey, you know, she needs me to tuck her into bed. Daddy, will you tuck me into bed? No, I already tucked you in one time. And I've told you, you get one chance and I'm not tucking you back in. Because she gets out of her bed like 17 times yeah. before she finally falls asleep. I'm not going in there every time, especially when I got a bum foot right now that doesn't want to walk. Um, but like, I'll say you get one time. And so I'll tuck her in. And then, Daddy, will you tuck me in? No, do it yourself. I don't know how to. It's like, it's it's a sheep. Like that it's not complicated. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I could understand not knowing how to tie your shoes or like even mixing up and like left and right shoes. Is is optional. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, and like you even, really don't need it. You got a freaking fleece unicorn robe on. That's something you're good. You want to use the sheet. Yeah. You literally only have to lay down. That's <laughs> that's the one requirement here is to yeah. lay down and close your eyes. <laughs> that's yeah. it. So yeah, gr- growing up, man, it was it was I think a, a healthy environment, but the only thing that I was missing was was just that that a better relationship with my father. And now since then, me and him are like best friends, right? It's 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 amazing because you know he's given his life to Christ, I've given my life to Christ, and there's that there's this bond that we're literally like the same person, you know? Because I wanted to be him, at least the the best parts of him, right? And, and he's always wanted to, to, to be better, a better person, a better father. Um, and so I think those things, those two things met eventually, but early on there was just that disconnect of, of wanting that male role model to, to take notice. Right. And it's so important. And I can't speak for, uh, females or a, a lady, but for a boy growing up, they have to know that their father sees them, acknowledges them, and is proud of them, right? Like, and if you don't get that, you're going to get it from somewhere else. And, and that's For honestly, sure. that's what happened to me. Like, like that's, that's where all of that started for me was I wanted him to take notice. If he wasn't going to take notice, I'll find somebody else that would, right? And growing up through school, um, I was quiet. I wasn't like – People, I tell people I was quiet in high school and they don't believe me because they know me now. And I'm yeah. like, I wasn't. Um, I hated That's like me telling people that I was a stick figure in high yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I was definitely like made fun of and, and picked on and stuff. And, and they're like, what? What? Yeah. I've, and you know me pretty well. And it, t- this isn't going to surprise you. People will be like, 
Dude, I bet you were like prom king in high school, weren't <laughs> yeah, you? Right? I'm like, yeah. bro, I was the last choice for prom yeah. king. You don't even know. <laughs> you were in a frat in college. You were prom king. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh. thanks for the stereotypes. Not me. <laughs> exactly. I've, I've never had anyone think that I was ever prom king. Or, <laughs> That's oh, not a burden you had to bear. <laughs> I never had a burden. Like, People were always like, yeah, I, you probably weren't that popular. And I'm like, no. But I was quiet, man. I was like super shy and I'm still kind of shy unless I have to turn it on. Right. And, you know, preaching or speaking or teaching to me, like, that's just a, that's a, that's a go switch. That's a, I'm, I'm to turn that switch on and let's go. And, and, it, and it, all that comes down and people are like, you don't seem nervous at all. And I'm like, well, that's just, that's just how, that's just kind of how I've, I've done that. But growing up in high school, I was quiet didn't say a lot. I had like four friends and we were like the four musketeers. Like we went everywhere together, hung out together. Um, and I made, you talk about education. I went to high school. I went to all 12 years of school in Elgin, Texas. Okay. Did so, you know I taught there? I did hundred percent. Okay. You, and I know some kids that you taught. Oh man. Yeah. I, let me think. Uh, I can't remember which one of the Waller boys. Did you teach Cameron Waller? Uh, I don't think so. And keep in mind, many students knew my name, but I didn't always right. know who they were. Yeah. Because it's, I've been approached like in Cedar Park, Coach Brown. I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. not a clue who you are. And yep. I'm so sorry because I don't want to feel, I don't want you to feel like you're worthless to me or something like that. I just don't know who you are. I'm sorry. Well, I get the same thing with phone calls now. I'll get a random phone number. And I'll answer it. They're like, Eddie. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? Hey, man, uh, can you come pick me up? I'm like, first of all, I don't even know who this is. <laughs> like, the kids <laughs> in our program, they don't have the same cell phone number for longer than about three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, bro, who are you? It's me, Joe. And I'm like, Joe who? Like, I've, 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 More description, please. I've mentored like 50 Joes. Like, help me out. And then they tell me, I'm like, oh, okay, okay. But so – I grew, I grew up in Elgin, Texas. With the, all my years of school, I went there. The, and I don't know how it is now. I can't speak on Elgin High School now. But back then, it was not the best. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's changed a whole lot. Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> there, are, there are parts of that, that high school that are um, still dark. Let's put it that way. Well, there, there's bright lights every now and then, right? Like, I got some great teachers. I had some really bad ones. Um, and... I think out of a class of 137 kids that graduated, I was ranked 127 out of go. kids that graduated. So that's that's a, a real high bar. <laughs> I will say this though, I was accepted into the engineering school of UT because my SATs was 1260. So, like, boy, <laughs> look at that look at that dichotomy. Like, I I literally had like a 79 grade point average. And I got a 1260 on my SAT and I, I'm just like, I think back on it now. I'm like, what if I'd have actually tried, right? Like it put any effort, what, what, what could I have done? But so I went, I, I got, I graduated high school, was going to go straight to UT. I got accepted into engineering. I wanted to be an aerospace engineer. Um, that was, that was like a thing back then. Now it would be like you're working private sector at, you know, Starlink or something. Right. Yep. But, like I was like, I'm going to go be an aerospace engineer for NASA. Like, 
Now they don't build anything anymore. They just buy rocket parts and put them together. Yeah. So um, I, I got into engineering and I went to UT for about two weeks. <laughs> and then um, new record. I, yeah, I got one grade. It was a C minus on an English paper. And I was like, I don't want to go to school anymore. So I'm going to take a year off, right? So I took a year off, and, um, and I didn't know you could drop your classes. That, that, I didn't know that was a thing. Like early on, like if you just decide I don't want to do this, you could drop your classes and get refunded. Like I didn't know that. Yep. Hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> I didn't drop any of them, and so I had a C- minus and then all Fs because it just didn't show up. I didn't tell them I dropped. I didn't do anything. So they sent me a letter and said, your GPA is like a 0.87. You, you, can't, you can't go come back to school next semester because you have to maintain like a 3.0 in the engineering field. Yeah. So they're like, we suggest you try maybe a community college to get your grade point average back up. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's, so that's not going to work for me. So <laughs> I didn't go back to college. I didn't. Um, instead, I made a, a much better like – upward mobile move by working at a bowling alley like that was, was like there you the go. greatest step i had was working at the bowling alley <laughs> <laughs> going from engineering field at ut to working at a dart bowl yeah there you go I, I, uh, dart I bowl. Dart bowl local legend yeah great times I'm just thinking of spraying all those shoes down. That that part always grosses me out. I'm like, I don't know where these shoes have been or like who's been in these shoes. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, there's two types of people that work at bowling alleys. Oh, boy. The type that actually spray the shoes down well and then the ones that don't. That's actually where coronavirus started. <laughs> Was it Dart Bowl? No. <laughs> where it spread I, I promise you that it could be how it spread um, <laughs> if, if you're wearing bowling alley shoes you're 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 taking your own health and and just throwing Into it your toes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because listen because even if you just spray it like some people like they would line all the shoes up right and they would just spray right down the deal but they're only getting the heel right so all that sweaty, toe, nasty, gooey stuff. At the, at toe the, fungus. That's all still in there. So, buy, uh, bro, go spend $37 and buy you a pair of bowling shoes. Throw them in the trunk. Just keep them forever. <laughs> it's, it's worth it. It really is. Now, I'm not saying every bowling alley is like that. But chances are they are. <laughs> I'm not saying everyone's like that, but it, everyone's like that. Yeah. <laughs> I will tell you that I tried to spray them down really well because I bowled there, right? And I use those shoes. But I would also highly recommend anybody that's doing it to when you get the shoes, tell them to spray them right there. Your foot might be a little bit wet, but it's going to be disinfected. But, <laughs> it's wet, but it ain't growing anything. That's for sure. So, yeah. So, yeah. So, that was a bad decision, I think, um, going engineering to bowling alley. Um and one of the things that I realized, we, we go back to kind of like how I always wanted to impress my father and what that ends up in when you're an adult or a young adult. Um, I found older kids that were like 
when I was 18, I was, I was hanging out with 23, 24 year olds. Um, and a lot of them were into the, the party scene, the drug scene. Um, and I started hanging around them and only them. Like, and I started to separate myself from, you know, the four best friends I had going through school um, because they were doing professional things. They were, they were doing the adulting, you know, that you're supposed to do out of high school. And I was still playing around trying to, you know, figure out who I was, what I wanted to do. So I started hanging out. And get that school. perfect 300 score, right? Uh, 298. That's the best I ever 298? <laughs> I, have a, I have a ring that they sent me. Cause it was, it was during the league. That's pretty league cool. event. So yeah, that's 298. I choked on the last ball. Dang. Yeah. I did. I did 12 straight strikes and then choked on the last one. No, or 11. Yeah. You got to throw 12 strikes. Yeah. I threw 11 strikes and then choked on the last one. It hit eight pins. God. Everybody was like, Oh, poor guy. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I just bowled a 298. Yeah. Your turn. <laughs> you beat me. But yeah, so I was I was sitting there and like hanging around this crowd and and the crowd was doing a lot of drugs and then I started smoking weed every day and I think that was you know they t- they say weed's like a gateway drug right and and that's what old people say and young people say that's not true and I don't think the drug itself is a gateway like I don't think smoking weed ever made me say oh I should just like try meth like it, it there was never that thought through your brain yeah. But what happens is if you're smoking weed every day, what else are you, are you hanging around or opening yourself up to, right? You got to get the drugs from somewhere and it's from a drug dealer, right? Or somebody that knows a drug dealer. And so you're, you're yeah. hanging around these types of people, drug dealers, drug addicts, a lot more, and not all of them only smoke weed. And I remember I smoked only weed for like two straight years. I'm like, nope, I turned down Coke, I turned down pills, I turned down everything else because I was like, no, nah, I just want to smoke weed because um, I'm, I'm trying to go somewhere with my life. Um, but I remember one night, they caught me on a bad night. This dude had some cocaine and he, he had it on the, the counter and he railed it out and he says, Eddie, come get you one. And I was like, nah, bro, I don't do cocaine. He's like, bro, trust me. We're about to go to the club tonight. If you do this cocaine, you have the best night of your life. I did, the, I did a little bit of that line. Um, and I don't know what the thought process was, why now it was okay, but I think it was just so normalized to me, right? I'd seen it so many times, been offered to it so many times, and I'd seen these people do it and nothing really bad was happening to them. And I think that Got is it. how weed, like constantly smoking weed transitions into harder drugs, right? Because it's more we, about the like communal aspect of it it becomes normalized. And, and I think that's the only way I can explain why I started going into harder and harder things was it became like a normal thing to me. I wasn't just hanging around people that were doing drugs. I was surrounding myself with the most impressive drug dealers I knew because to me, those dudes were cool. Right. And those were the guys I was trying to impress. And I wanted their attention. Now I wanted their approval. I wanted their recognition. And when I did that, that line of Coke, I did have like one of the best nights of my life, right? Like I was energized. We went and had fun. We, we drank beer, smoked weed, did more Coke. It was a great night, right? And, and that's where when you're, when you're trying to talk to somebody about doing drugs, if you act like there are no good parts to drugs, they're not going to listen to anything you say. Yeah. Because there are lots of good things about drugs. 
but the bad things outweigh them exponentially, right? The consequences, the destruction of life, the, the cost of friends and family, like the, the consequences are exponentially worse than the good parts, but there were good parts. And that's what, yeah. that's what started me in this cycle of weed, coke, alcohol, weed, coke, alcohol constantly. And so that's what I was doing for age 18 to really 21, right? For like three years, three, two and a half, three years, it was working out of bowling alley, um, waiting tables at a restaurant. It was all these little weird jobs so that I could do drugs and sell drugs. And it got to the point where um, towards the end of it, I would have like 10 or 15 pounds of weed under my waterbed. And on a Friday night, I'd be chopping up cocaine, um, cutting it with aspirin, putting it in little baggies, and then having one of my runners go to the, the, uh, the strip of Latino bars in Elgin, right? A little strip that used to be there back in the day. And he would just be selling these all night. He'd come back, get more. And we were making thousands of dollars a week um, doing that. And to me, it was all normal, right? And, and that's like all these older dudes were like looking at me. Now, a lot of them were buying drugs from me, right? And they were looking at me like I'm the guy, I'm the man. And that, that moment that I was a, a higher level drug dealer than the guys that I used to look up to, now they're starting to look up to me. That, that feeling of power or I've made it, that thing is the thing I was chasing like my whole life, right? That feeling of, man, this guy is somebody. And once I felt that, it was hard. It was really hard not to, to try to give that up, right? Because that's, that's the thing I think a kid wants in life is to think that somebody values them and says, hey, that guy's important. That guy is somebody. And that man, when I felt it, it was over. I didn't, I didn't even care about the drugs themselves. I cared about the power and the recognition that came from selling them. Like, I didn't even care about the money. I mean, we, we'd make so much money, we would spend almost all of it in one night and be broke again the next day and have to do it all over again. The money didn't mean anything, but it was the recognition and the power that came from the drugs and the money that, that was the, the start of my downfall in life. And that's, that's, where, that's where it took that, that weird turn. And so on my 21st birthday, um, I went out with my dad. He took me to a, a, a gentleman's club, right? He's like, you're 21. I'm going to take you to a gentleman's club. You know, we're going to share this male bonding thing, right? This is all both of us before we were Christians, <laughs> all right? So male bonding, male bonding. Yes. Yes. That's why I threw up the air quotes when I said male bonding. (laughs) So it was me, my brother-in-law, my uncle, my dad's best friend and and me and my dad. Right. And we go to the strip club and we sit down and I remember this girl comes up, spins me around in the chair, jumps on my lap and starts making out with me. Like, like immediately. And I remember thinking, I wonder what my dad thinks right now, right? So the girl gets up, kisses me on the cheek one more time and says, I'll be back in a little while and then leaves. My dad, my uncle, my brother-in-law are all there like just dumbfounded. Like what is going on right now? And they're like, do you know her? 
And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's my girlfriend. And then it dawned on them, this ain't his first time in a strip club, right? <laughs> and I think that was the, the, the recognition that started when my, my, my dad knew that I was doing something that they didn't know, right? Like, there's this whole other life that I was living that they didn't have any idea about. Like, I was living in that, that realm, you know, strip clubs, drugs, parties, clubs, fights, like all this stuff. And, and I could see the, the, the dumbfounded look on his face, like, what is going on? Who are you? How is this happening? And how did none of us know about it? And so right after that, about two weeks later, um, I got upset. I had broken up with her and I was mad. And all my friends said, let's go to Sixth Street and party up. And so I was like, all right, cool. I had drank so much that night because I was angry that I don't really remember everything, but I remember walk like stumbling down Fifth Street. My, I parked on 7th. I was on 6th. I was walking down 5th Street somehow looking for my car because I was about to drive home and I had about two ounces of weed in my pocket. And this homeless guy comes up to me and says, hey, do you have a... Um, you have some spare change? And I was like, nah, bro, I'm, I'm broke. I said, but I got a bunch of weed. You want some weed? And he's like, yeah. So I, I pull out this big wad of weed in a baggie and I just swing it out like that. I said, hold out your hand. I grab a whole handful and I put it in his hand. And right as I did that, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's two police officers. And they look Absolutely. at me like, they're like, bro, what are you doing? You're in the middle of Fifth, like, look, Fifth Street wasn't shut down, right? Like, yeah. you're standing in the middle of Fifth Street, handing drugs to a homeless person right out in the open. The cops were about 15 feet away watching this whole thing. They were probably going to get me for a PI regardless, right? A public intoxication. But he, the, the cop was like, what are you doing? I looked at the cop. I'll never forget. I said, it's my birthday. Because I was, I was thinking it was my birthday because it had just happened. Yep. And the cop goes, happy birthday. Put your hands behind your back. And he took me to jail. <laughs> this is where kind of like my background switches. So they charged me with a felony. So I, they hit me with delivery of drugs, right? Which was a felony. And I was like, what are you talking about? I didn't deliver anything. They're like, did you, did you have drugs in your hand and give it to someone else in public? And I was like, yes. Was it over two ounces? And I was like, yes. He goes, felony. And I was like, what? Oh, and, man. And so I, had to, I had to go to court, and I was facing a felony, char felony drug charge. And I was like, I, I can't believe this. Like, I was trying to give a homeless man weed, right? And so I, I step into court, and, I, and I, I remember telling my lawyer, I was like, what if I joined the military? You think they'd let it slide? You think they would like cancel this? He goes, I bet we can work that. So he goes up to the judge and this is pre 9-11. The military was way in need of people. Yeah. He tells the judge, um, my client would like to join the military if, you, if, we, if you'll drop the charges because they won't let you have a felony. And they're like, if he does two years, we'll drop the charge. But he has to do at least two years in the military. And I was like, done. So uh, the next uh, week, <laughs> okay. 
I, I, I beat a felony by joining the military. And so I, I joined the Coast Guard. Um, I believe that every human being should have to go through boot camp. I believe that wholeheartedly because it made me unbelievably strong, right? Like I, I was like, I'm mentally, physically, emotionally, it strengthened every bit of that with me. And it's one of the reasons why like I'm successful today. Like boot camp breaks you and then teaches you that you can't be broken. It's funny. Right. Yeah. But that's exactly it what it breaks. It breaks the previous version of you and then creates an indestructible version of yeah. you. Yeah. And, and it, I think every human being should have to go through those eight to 12 weeks, whatever it is, even if they didn't join, because it's, it's, it's life changing. Um, but so fast forward, I get accepted. Now I'm, go, I'm uh, working on airplanes. They, the Coast Guard has long range surveillance planes um, called Falcon 20s. And I went to aviation school to learn how to work on those. And I became a jet engine mechanic, basically, in the Coast Guard. Uh, I loved it. I loved everything about it. Um, but I was in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico was probably not the smartest choice for me to go to. Can't imagine why. Um, you, you're talking about a party guy that's trying to live his life clean in the right way. Because, I, listen, when I got that felony, it kind of scared me a little, right? Because I was like, I could go do two years in state jail, and that's no fun. And so... I was in there and it took six months of doing the right thing before I, I went back to my old ways and smoked weed all the time, drank too much, um, all while working on jet engines, right? That's always fun. Sounds like a great recipe right there. Yeah, yeah. What could go yeah, let's, let's mix drugs, alcohol, and very explosive and dangerous metal yeah, parts. And, um, yeah, you're working on an engine that we need to work. Yeah. But I, honestly, I was really good at that job. Like the, my supervisors, they, they loved me. They, they wanted to promote me um, as soon as I was ready. Um, but I, I made it about two years, at, two and a half years in Puerto Rico. And then they had to transfer me to Corpus. Um, and in Corpus, the drug testing was a little bit more stringent. And I failed a drug test and got booted out right at three years. Thing. So I tell, I tell that man, the kids we work with, I tell them, you can change your occupation and you can change your location, but until you change who you are on the inside, none of it will matter because you're just going to get the same results. So, yeah, I got booted out. It, it was probably the lowest point of my life when I got kicked out of the Coast Guard because I loved that job, man. That was a great job. I love being in the military. Um, I probably was going to do it long term, like – 20, you know, but I got booted out because I couldn't stop smoking weed. Um, they, the, the, the staff there in Puerto Rico and in Corpus fought for me to get a general discharge and not a dishonorable one. And um, I'm forever grateful for that. Like that was just like a, an acknowledgement that I worked hard for them. Right. They're like, listen, like we get it. So we, whatever, but, you know, they're going to kick you out, but we're going to get, we're going to get them to give you a general. And so that, that was just like a little pat on the back, man. I, I respect them like crazy for that. They didn't have to do that. So that was a very nice thing to do. No kidding. Yeah. So I'm 22, 20, no, I'm 23 now out of the Coast Guard. Um, and I'm like, I, I still want to help people. I still want to do something cool. 
So I decided to join a fire department. So I joined. I, I went and that's to how fire. your hair turned red? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's probably how I got a lot of gray hairs, though. So I ended up um, going to the fire academy. Um, once again, like I put all my effort into that, like just, just the same way I did. I, I pretty much do everything. I want to be really good at it. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted to help, but I also wanted people to look at me and say, take notice, right? Like, I like that guy. That guy's a good person. That guy's valuable. So um, I worked hard in the academy. I got a job at Lockhart, Texas, where I was, uh, I was part-time for like, I don't know, a year, year and a half. And then I became full-time for like two years. And um, this is probably like the stupidest thing that's ever happened to me. Um, considering the story you've been sharing so far, I'm very intrigued after you said that. No, it, this is like where, when I tell people this part, they're like, bro, you're an idiot. Like the transition from UT mechanical engineering to the bowling alley is bad enough. Right. Like that's just a bad choice. Yeah. Really bad choices. This one's worse. Oh boy. Strap in folks. Here we go. Way worse. This is like the peak of the roller coaster when you've been like, you know, honestly, yeah, like this is like, this is where everything goes off the rails, bro. And it goes to the top, like the roller coaster is going to the top, but it doesn't go down the hill. It just like falls off. Like it just, <laughs> it just goes off the tracks and crashes and burns. Oh boy. Yeah. So Please continue. Little do you know about firefighting. Um, one, they're horribly underpaid in small cities. So, like, if you go to Dallas or New York or Austin even, they probably pay pretty well. I'm, my best friend is a Houston fire, uh, fire, firefighter, and uh, they, are, they keep getting, like, benefits cuts and pay cuts and stuff like that, and that's a whole different situation, but I am aware. It's, it's, they, they do not pay them what they are owed. Um, I, I firmly believe that about civil servants and also teachers. Teachers should make about yeah. 10 times what they make. I, I'd probably still be in the teaching field if that was the case. Yeah. So, and they, they justify the fire department as, well, you're, you're working 24 hours straight, but then you're off for 48 hours so you can do other things. And I'm like, oh, really? Because I just stayed up 24 hours taking call after call of car wrecks, drunk drivers, old people stroking out, um, people falling in their bathrooms, um, fires, chicken places burning down. Like I just spent all night taking these calls. Haven't slept yet. I go home at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm going to sleep till eight o'clock at night. So I can't do anything that day. Then the next day, that third day, maybe I could have another part-time job if the boss would be willing for me to work every third day. Right. But that's sometimes that's a Friday. Sometimes it's a Sunday. Sometimes it's a Tuesday. So you just never know. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, you, can't, you can't have another job. You, you probably could, but I, I, I wasn't in that frame of mind to do that. So I'm horribly poor, living in like a, a mobile home. My girlfriend was working at like Sonic, right? So we were balling. <laughs> I went from like... Balling on a budget. <laughs> balling on a budget, man. Like everything's like Tostino's pizzas and, you know... Ramen. You don't knock Tostino's. I love them. I still eat <laughs> four of them things right now. Um, yeah, so I wasn't making a lot of money. And I, I use that sometimes as an excuse, but 
it's not, it wasn't the real reason. The real reason was the two days of doing nothing for an active mind. That's like the worst. Like if you're, if you're at, if, if your brain needs stimulation and you give it 48 hours of nothing, like you're going to get bored and bad things happen when an active mind is bored. I don't know anything about that at all. Please. <laughs> Can't imagine what I would do if I had 48 hours of no children and no responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're not of nothing. And so a friend of mine, I, I started trying to do like this, this uh, building entertainment centers for people, custom entertainment centers. Cause my dad taught me how to work with wood my whole life. Um, I could use his shop to build the stuff. And, and I would just build like one thing a week, go install it and make some money. And I, I was almost doing that. I was starting pretty well. Um, and I was doing it with a friend of mine who was still doing drugs full time, um, always drunk. Um, I was trying to help him out. He was like one of my best friends. And, and so we were doing it together. Then he got a phone call from a guy we used to buy drugs from back when we were 18 and 19. He was like a big time drug dealer. Well, he went to prison for 10 years. So, you know, he got out seven years into his sentence um, and he's like, went right back at it. He, he got out one day and two weeks later, he's buying $20,000 worth of ecstasy pills. Um, like that's, that's literally how fast he jumped back up into the game. And he called and said, hey, I need somebody to remodel my house I just bought. And I'm like, I can do the cabinets. And so I go over there and I start working a little bit in his house. And he's now moved from ecstasy pills to methamphetamines. And he's selling about eight pounds a week in methamphetamines. Good night. And, and that's the street value of that's, you know, it's. 15,000 a pound to buy it wholesale. And then you probably are making about a hundred thousand a pound once it gets to street level. Um, but he was quadrupling his money per pound. Right. So he was, he was making lots of money. Um, and I started seeing them do all this and he knew me from a long time ago. He trusted me. He liked me. We were really good friends too. Um, and I remember him like, I was working one night and I had been all up all night at the fire, at the fire department. And then I come over to his house to try to do something that he, that he had to have done that day. And I'm like, bro, I'm tired. And he's like, here, take that. And he crushed up some meth and he says, snore like cocaine. You'll be up for two days, bro. You'll be fine. And I don't know why, but I did it right. Lack of sleep, lack of imagination, pure stupidity. But I, I snorted that line of methamphetamines and I, I didn't sleep for three days. Like, seriously, didn't go to sleep Good for three heavens. days. And didn't do any more. Like, I, I stayed up all the next two days and then did a whole shift on the fire department without sleeping. And then I crashed for two days after that. But once I crashed, I felt like garbage. And I woke up, went to go work on his house. And I mean, I'm just like, I look like I'm just dead. He goes, bro, you know what'll fix that, right? And I did another one. And, and this time I stayed up for like two days. And then a couple of days later, I did another one. I stayed up for one day. And then it was just like a way to stay up all night, right? And, and I remember like just doing more and more and more and more and it becoming once again normalized. And 
I was towards the end, I was like full on addicted to meth. And I was like, I'm a, I'm, I'm a firefighter. Like, what is this? Like, what's going on right now? Like, I can't do that. Like, this is so dangerous, man. And I remember my guy saying, bro, I want you to quit the fire department. I'll pay you $1,500 a week and all the drugs you can have. And anywhere we go, I pay for everything. But I need you here with me 24-7 to help me run this business, this drug business. And I remember I quit the fire department that day. It was like this conflicted idea that I can't be a drug addict, drug dealer, and be a firefighter. Right? I can't do that. And I have to give one of them up. And I gave up being a firefighter to sell drugs full time and to do drugs full time. And, and I'm what, never. What was the, what was real quick? Cause I, I've never done drugs. Um, outside of the ones they prescribe me that don't even work anyway. Um, what, what was the, what was the draw to meth? Like, what is it? Is it just the fact that you could stay up for like superhuman amount of time or what? No, it enhances your nerve endings like exponentially. So you feel everything on a, on a higher level, right? Um, now you'll feel pain. You'll feel pleasure. You'll, you'll feel sad. You'll feel happy on another level. Right? So it's like, it's like a, a an elevation of every sensation. So, you know, when I, when you're doing it, yeah, it's, it's staying up is cool, but I, I'll tell you, I think honestly that the part that becomes addictive is once you get into that sleep deprived state, there's this feeling of like out of body numbness where you don't even really feel like things are happening. It's kind of hard to explain, but it's, you're, you're sleep deprived. You haven't been asleep for like two or three days, but there's that delirium that's going on in your brain that it's, there's a pleasurable sense of like nothing really matters. Nothing's actually happening. Right. And you just are living in that moment and nothing else matters. Um, I think that's the draw of the methamphetamines right now you continue on that route and it goes from that, that utopian like delirium into straight up paranoia and psychosis because your brain has to rest. Yeah. If you're not resting your brain, like you get into some very weird mental issues and, and problems and things like that. And this is why parents lose their minds because they don't get rest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Parents get sleep. Trust me. Yeah. I, I know what the consequences are, right? <laughs> you don't even need drugs. You just need a parent who doesn't get any sleep because they got a brand new baby or a toddler that keeps waking them up. <laughs> That's all you need, man. And parents are like, I totally understand what he's saying. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, so you're, you're experiencing that that swing of sleep for two days, stay awake for five, sleep for two, stay awake from five. And I mean, it was an out of control, just like, I don't know if you've ever seen that, that movie, um, uh, what was it, Loathing in Las Vegas? What was the name of that movie where Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? 
where Johnny Depp and this other dude are in it and they're doing like drugs all the way to Las Vegas. And when they get to Vegas, they're doing even more drugs. It's just this weird out of control type movie where there's hallucinations and psychosis and just a bunch of issues. I, I, for about a year, maybe 16 months, I went hardcore slinging dope and, and we weren't selling dope to drug addicts, right? Like that's not what we were doing. We were picking up loads, shipments, and then giving them to other big-time drug dealers, right? So we had a crew of about, I don't know, 15 or 20 people that it was a straight-up pyramid, right? Like, this guy's buying it. I'm not really buying or selling anything, but I'm right here next to him, um, counting money, um, making sure people pay us. Um, going everywhere he goes, you know, you need somebody that can watch your back that can, you know, understand what the game is, but somebody you also can trust. And that's what he had in me. And, you know, like, once again, there's this, this idea that I want to be the best at whatever, or I want to be really good at whatever I'm trying to do. I went all in with selling meth, right? Like we were, we were good. We were doing great. Um, we, we were destroying our lives, right? We were both addicts. We were, do, we were doing so great, we were headed straight for the grave. Yeah. No, we would have been dead. Like, I, I, I kid you not, we would have been shot or killed or I, I, I don't know how long. We, it would have been a while before we overdosed, but we would have been shot or killed the way we were, the way we were living because we didn't care about anybody but us and um, our little crew. And if anybody stepped to us the wrong way, like we were doing everything that that entailed. And it was it – was, it was out of control for a little while. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget. He, I show up, I'm going to his house one day and I'm driving in and out of the school, he lived in South Austin and there was a school parking lot, but it was a summertime. So nobody was in it, but there was like 15 cop cars and eight vans parked in the car and they were all starting to pull out of the, the school and they cut me off, like literally, like I had to slam on my brakes. They cut me off and they all start coming like at a high rate of speed in front of me. And I'm like, bro, they're going to, to the man's house. And so I pick up the phone and I call him. I said, hey, I don't know if this is true or not, but there's 15 cop cars and eight vans flying down the road heading in your direction. He goes, how do you know? I said, I'm behind them. He said, go home. Don't call me. I hung up. I went back to the house. They raided his house that day, but he knew it was coming and cleaned out everything. And so they didn't catch him, but that triggered an investigation. Um, and once they realized he was moving meth um, cross state lines, they got the DEA involved. And once the DEA gets involved, it's pretty much a wrap. Like they don't play around. They got lots of resources and money. So they followed us around for six months, um, tapping phones, following cars, um, arresting drug addicts, and then working their way back up towards us. And, you know, with meth, there's such a high sentence rate that even a little bit of meth can give somebody like three or four years. And so the drug addicts are going to snitch on their supplier. And then the supplier gets caught with an ounce and he's looking at like five and so on. And so, and they, everybody just starts rolling and it got to where um, everybody was getting arrested and we knew it. My, my homeboy was like, we have to go. We have to leave. So this is what we're going to do. We got uh, $120,000 in cash. We're going to go up to um, Dallas 
we're going to get 12 pounds of meth fronted to us. So another $150,000 of meth um, was going to get fronted to us. And we were going to go to New York City and open up shop there. And we were going to burn that guy for $120,000. We were going to take our cash and drugs and go start a, a shop up in New York City. And I'm telling you, if we had done that, we would have got killed in New York. Because you can't just open up something like that in New York and think it's going to work. Because um, of competition or what? Yeah, the competition. Like New York, so like it's locked down, right? Like any corner or any area that you try to go to, you're going to get shot. But he wanted to go to New York, and I was like, I don't care. Let's go. So I packed up all my stuff, kid you not, just left my house, drove to um, Dallas where I was going to meet him, got a hotel, got two hotels, rooms, and was waiting for him. And before he left, he stopped off at a, a girlfriend's house to say goodbye and it was at the end of a cul-de-sac and the feds locked him in and they, they arrested him that day. You know? And then here's, here's, here's how Did his girlfriend work at Sonic. Huh? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. 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 So then I started working at Sonic I went back to the bowling alley and I did Sonic and bowling alley. No, yep. <laughs> I, I, I swear. I'm like, I don't know what to do now. Right? Like, everything's like falling down around me. Like, I don't know what to do. Like he's got the money. He's got the, like, I can't go, I can't go to this connect cause the connect don't know me like that. He knows me as this guy's right hand. Right. So I can't go get more drugs. Like not without him. And like the whole organization's in jail at this point. I think me and one other guy hadn't got arrested yet. And I'm like, bro, I'm hit. Well, I get a phone call about three days later on my cell phone and I'm like, hello. And they're like, yeah, this is Chris. I'm like, Chris, who? They're like, it's Chris. Your boy Mike told me to call you. And I was like, nah, because I know Mike's in jail, right? Yeah. So they call again. And this time the guy says he's with the DEA. I hung up on him immediately. <laughs> I said, click. Bye. <laughs> Calls back a third time. And this time it's, my boy, the, the leader, who's on the DEA cell phone telling me to help him get out of jail, right? Or get less of a sentence. So I'm like, what does he want me to do? Because I'm sure I, I, there's no way he wants me to like snitch on somebody. That, that's not who we were, right? Like we don't do that. I was like, maybe he wants me to like threaten a witness or something like that. So I'm like, okay. I'll, I'll meet with, with these guys and see what they want. And they told me what they wanted, and they wanted me to go and buy drugs from a head guy that I'd never bought drugs from and then, like, set him up. And I was like, y'all are stupid. First of all, that guy, he's going to know immediately something's wrong if I ask to buy them. Yep. He's going to be like, where's your guy? I'm like, ah, oh, he's in Florida, right? <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, no, I can't do that. This is the dumbest plan ever. I'm not doing that. And they're like, if you don't do this, you're going to go to prison. And I said, look, bro, I'm not doing anything. And I got up and left, right? Um, because I'm like, they don't got any evidence on me. I don't have drugs on me. I'm, I'm not. Like, they don't have nothing on me. So I left. I called the guy, the guy they wanted me to set up, and I told him. I was like, bro, they wanted me to set you up. If I were you, I would leave. And he left the country. 
And the next day they called me and said, we recorded that whole conversation. We heard you telling him, uh, either you could come in today or we'll come, we're coming to get you. And they, they hit me with a conspiracy. So they linked me to all the other people. They arrested me under a conspiracy. And I basically did seven years flat in federal prison. From 16 months before, I was a firefighter, like doing good. And, and not too long before that, a Coast Guard guy that was jet engine smoking pot. In the Coast Guard. Yeah. And so you're talking within two years, I quit two of like the most amazing jobs because of drugs, because of that desire to be somebody, right? Because drugs can make you somebody in like a week. Whereas the fire department and the Coast Guard, it could take years for you to get to the point where you're somebody. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so that, that, that was the path to prison. And once I was in prison, I mean, I didn't get better. Like, I was angry. I was pissed off at the world. I was all by myself. Um, everybody I know either told on me or wanted me to tell on somebody. And so I'm like, man, I, I'm, I was just pissed. And the people in, in prison could tell. They could tell I was angry, that I was young, that I was smart. Um, and a prison gang saw that and like jumped on the opportunity. You know, day one, I was, I was in prison one day when the leader of that, that prison gang tapped me on the shoulder and said, what's up, man? You in here for five or 10? He already knew I was in for meth. He already knew it was one of those two numbers because of just how I looked. And I said, well, I got the 10. And uh, he said, come with me. And he took me into a TV room and that they ran. And it was a whole bunch of people that looked just like me. They were all in there for meth. And they were all part of a crew. And they, you know, over about a year later, I became like, I was part of that game, right? Still got prison tattoos and gang tattoos all over my back. Um, you know, and that, that was... That was like, when I talk about the roller coaster falling off the tracks and like landing on the ground, being part of that gang was the, the, the crash, right? Because I was just so mad at the world, man. I wanted to fight every day. I wanted to like, like if anybody looked at me wrong, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna throw, we're gonna fight. I fought on the handball court because somebody said that I miscounted the score. And I said, you call me a cheater? And like, I started fighting, like that's the kind, that was the kind of mentality I was in at that point. And I, and it was, it was a dark time, man. I can't, I can't imagine what my mom and my sisters and, and, and all them went through when they come to visit me. And I'm this angry, pissed off little kid trapped in a man's body. Right. Because I was still that little kid that just wanted somebody to notice him. That's all it was. Um, and, and I was, doing whatever I could, wherever I could to get that recognition. And I'll never forget, because I had never been arrested before really and charged, I had low security points. And the prison didn't know I was in a gang currently. So they called me in and they're like, do you want to go to a, a minimum security prison? And it was like a thousand times better than where I was. And I was like, no, nah, homie, I'm good here. And he was like, what? I was like, no, nah, I'm good. And he's like, what do you mean you're good? 
I said, I like it here, right? Because I had respect, I had power, I had a crew, right? No one messed with me. Like, I was like, I, bro, I could do my time here. And they're like, dude, I've never heard somebody turn down a minimum security facility. Like, what, what's wrong with you? I said, nothing, man, I like it here. And I just got up and left. He says, listen, if you turn this down, they're gonna consider that you're a flight risk, that something's wrong with you, and you're not gonna be allowed to ever go to a minimum security. I was like, I don't care, bro. And I walked out. And about six months later, I got in a fight with a bandito biker. He was like 6'3", 220. And I'm not 6'3", or 220. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like fighting me. But a really angry, fighting capable person. <laughs> yeah, the dude knew how to fight, too. He wasn't, a, he wasn't one of those posers, man. This dude could fight. And I remember I, I, I stood in there. I did good, right? He, he won. Like, he... He got more hits than I did, but I picked him up, threw him on the ground, was trying to fight the best I could. People are all like, bro, you got a heart. You got a heart. Like, you did great. I'm like, I got two black eyes. This side of my face is swollen. My back hurts. My shoulder hurts. My knee hurts from the fight. I was like, I don't feel like I did good at all. Yeah, and my body lost for sure. <laughs> I remember sitting there going like, this is, I can't do this life anymore, bro. I can't. Like, I was 30. I was 30 years old. I said, I can't do it. I cannot do this anymore. I was 28 when I got locked up. Two years later, I'm like one of the top guys on our location in our prison of this gang. And I was just tired, man. And I was telling the kid that we had in this program today, I said, look, I remember that day like it was yesterday when it dawned on me that I'm not this guy. I'm not tough. I'm not cool. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a gangbanger. I'm not that guy. I've been faking this dude since I was 16, 17 years old, and I'm tired of it. And it dawned on me, you know who I am? I'm a nice guy that likes to help people. Hence the Coast Guard, firefighting, mechanical engineer. Like I wanted to do something good to help people. And I was like, I'm, I'm done faking it. I'm going to be the nice guy from now on. And I remember I, I, I leaned over and I told the leader of that gang, I said, look, bro, I said, you could do what you want. I said, but I'm done with this gang stuff. He goes, what you mean? I said, look, man, um, I, I'm done. I'm too old for this. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of all. He said, Shh, just calm down. Look, just retire. Don't tell nobody. Just do what you want to do. But don't be running around saying you done. And I was like, all right, bet. Then it started dawning on me. I turned down a minimum security prison, right? And I was like, ah, oh, why'd I turn it down? I could be like chilling over there. There's no gangs over there, right? Like, it's just like, I could just relax and be me finally. Um, and, and, and about a, a week later, that same guy that told me I would never go to a facility came, called me into his office and said, pack your stuff right now. I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, it's, it's not a question anymore. You have to go. They changed the policy. They said anybody with a security clearance as low as yours has to be at a minimum. And I was like, what? I packed my stuff up. <laughs> bet, man, bet. I'm not. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was funny. It's, it's a straight up God thing. The minute I decided to stop faking who I was, God made a way to take me out of that situation and put me in a much better one. The minimum security prison was like a Bible school. They were holding like eight Bible studies a week. Like the inmates were running them. And they was, these were like Bible scholars, man. 
And I was there for about six months before I gave my life to Christ. And I, re I remember a guy named Norm McDonald invited me to come watch this movie, this church movie in visitation that these volunteers were bringing in for us to watch. I said, man, I ain't watching no church movie, man. Get out of here. And he said, bro, Mel Gibson made this movie. And I was like, the guy from Lethal Weapon made yeah. a church movie. <laughs> he says, yeah, bro, Mel Gibson made this movie. And I was like, I'm going to check that out. Right? Like, if, it, so, if, if Mel Gibson had not made that movie, I might not be a Christian today. You can say whatever you want about him, but his link to Lethal Weapon and this movie drew me to Christ. How Lethal Weapon saved my life. How Lethal Weapon saved my life. I, I walked out of that movie. And I'm, have you seen Passion of the Christ? I'm, I'm sure you have. Yes. Yeah. So one, I was kind of upset that I had to read the whole thing and that it was in Aramaic. Yeah. Like, I'm like, you didn't have to do that, Mel. Like you could have made them speak English. Yeah. Way to go being not American and making everything in English. <laughs> Stupid. For real. So, but I, I, I walked out and I remember in my mind very vivid, vivid, vividly that I'd always believed in God, but I never really believed that Jesus was real, like a real thing. Right. Like I would say I believed in Jesus because I went to church my whole life, but I never actually believed it. And then I saw that and I said, dude, is he, was he real? And did he do all of that? Did he go through all of that for me? And if he did, I want to know. And, and that's like, I, I, I called my mom like a, a day later and I can only imagine how, what she, what she was thinking. I called her, I said, out of the blue, she knows I'm in a prison game. Okay. <laughs> That's all she knows up to this point. I call her. I said, mom, can you send me a study Bible? And she's like, what? <laughs> I was like, I need a study Bible. They said uh, uh, a life application study Bible is the best thing to get. You, can you get me one of those? She's like, I'll order it right now. <laughs> like, right now. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. She it's already in the mail. Like, <laughs> chuck it over the fence. Yeah. <laughs> Here, baby. Here, baby, here's your Bible. <laughs> no, but she, she'd been praying for a long time. But I remember reading the Bible, it making sense to me that my search for value was not something that could ever really truly be found on earth, right? Like you can't find value on earth. Like your dad can make you feel better. Your parents can make you feel better. But ultimately that value has to come from the person that created you. Right. And our parents are the best source that we have initially, but eventually it's never enough. Right. And so we chase drugs and we chase gangs and we chase money and power and respect. And then all of a sudden you realize that the creator of the universe made me and he's calling me a masterpiece and he wants to use me to do things for him. That gave me intrinsic value immediately. And it changed everything about me. Like, Literally, it was one of those, I was this guy one day and I was this guy the next day. And these two guys didn't even look similar. And for the next three years in prison, man, all I did was um, mentor kids, teach kids the, or teach young men the Bible. Um, we, we had inmate led services and so I would preach to them and um, I realized that this is what I was created to do was to teach these words. Like I, it just came easy. 
Like, you could give me a Bible right now, open it up, point it a verse. I'll read the verse, grab a little bit of context, and then can deliver a concise, flowing sermon on that verse right now. And it's just, it comes easy to me because I know I was created to do that and, and do it in multiple different ways. And, and so I was like, so happy. Like, I, I can't explain how joyful and happy I was knowing that I realized I found out who I was, who I was supposed to be, and what I'm supposed to do. And when I got out of prison, I'll never forget, man. Like, I was like, I have to do this. I have to continue to do some type of ministry somehow, somewhere. But I, here I am, a felon, like a hardcore felon with tattoos. And, you know, I still got like lots of baggage and attitude issues and anger problems. And, you know, um, I still like, who knows if I'm ever going to go back to drugs? Like I just got out of jail. I don't know. And so like, I was, I was nervous that I would never actually get the opportunity to do that type of ministry. And, uh, which real quick for, for everybody listening, I want to chime in. Um, the Eddie friends that I know literally does not match up with the Eddie friends. I just heard about, um, if I was to describe the Eddie, I know I'd be like, first of all, he's a jokester. So you're probably, you're going to laugh. I mean, I said this in the introduction, like it is, it is very rare that you will have an encounter with Eddie and not be laughing or smiling about something later. Um, simultaneously, there's like, there's like no irritation in you. Like if somebody asks you for help for something, like you're not like, okay, I guess I'll help. You know, it's, it, that's not it. I, I know that if I called you up and had an earnest need that I needed help with and you were even remotely available, yeah. you'd be there. And we don't talk all the time. We take, we stay in touch. Sure. But like, I just know that's your personality that you would be there at the drop of a hat. Um, even if you had to like move stuff out of the way to make that happen just because of your personality. And so to hear this backstory of like, yeah, we were essentially a movie playing out in real life kind of thing. Um, and this is, you know, we didn't let anybody look at us the wrong way. We didn't let anybody talk to us the wrong way. I'm like, I feel like people could look at you and talk to you the wrong way all the time now. And you just be like, hmm, okay, do you need help with something? Like, can I, you can know, I help carry same, that for you? That you same know, paradox whatever. that you're talking about happened at the, the minimum security because some people that knew me at the, the higher security, they, they dropped their points too. And they would come over to the minimum security eventually. And like, here's this dude preaching and teaching the Bible. And they're like, bro, what happened to you? Like, what, what, like, what do you, what, what is this? And, and those guys ended up, I was able to really in, um, influence them towards Christ because they, they, they were saying like, it has to be real, right? Like if, if Eddie is this guy now, and the only thing that happened was God, then it has to be real. Because like a friend of mine at the, the higher security told me, he goes, I'm gonna be honest with you, bro. No one liked you. We all respected you. They knew you would fight and you had a crew behind you. So nobody really messed with you, but no one actually liked you. And I was like, I could see that. I was kind of an angry person. And <laughs> like, I didn't want to talk to anybody and I didn't care about anybody. And that did change. Um, and and I, it's, it's really cool, man, how, how that 
the minute I made that decision, everything in my life started not just like falling into place, like blessings started coming down. Like I was still in prison for another three years. Right. Yeah. But I never, the moment I gave my life to God, I didn't ever really do another day in prison. It was more like, okay, I'm just at a location where I get to help people. Right. Because I know that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't care where that's at, but that's what I'm going to do. And when I got out, I wanted to keep doing that. And so I was thinking, okay, I guess I'll just go to seminary and be a pastor. You know, like that's the route you take when you can teach and preach the Bible, I guess. Um, But like my wife, you know, I got married right out of, right when I got out of prison. Um, We met online, um, fell in love through text messages. I'm sorry. Did you say fell in love? Nah, that's, <laughs> that's really bad. <laughs> and guys, I appreciate this interview. Uh, Eddie, it's been yeah, so great having no, you I on. Have to I, have to go. I <laughs> yeah. fell in love via text message. Um, and when we met, it was just immediate and she had two kids and I fell in love with those kids and those kids are like my kids now. And so like, I, I, I tell everybody I bought my kids after they were uh, potty trained. And I highly recommend doing that. That's it. <laughs> highly recommend it. Like, look, yep. get, get, the, get the ones that are already uh, a little bit older. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get the puppy version. Yeah, 100%. Being a stepdad has its issues. It's, it's very difficult because, you know, especially if the dad's in the kid's life, like mine, mine are, and the kid's dad loves them and cares about them. And, you know, so there's that crazy, weird, you know, relationship but to me those are my kids like i love them and and but i didn't have to change one of their diapers and bro let me tell you i'm so happy about that that you you don't even know folks he's beaming from ear to ear okay you don't even know how happy i was (laughs) my wife hates that about me like she's like i hate you so um but my wife was like i don't really see you as a pastor because you don't like dealing with like carpet color and like in-house issues. I feel like you would come in there and tell everybody to shut up and just do what you say. And I'm like, yeah. I'd be right. It could be <laughs> So I was, you know, going to Wells Branch Church, right, with Chris Fletcher-Pole. Which, which is where we met yep. for everybody. He was banging away on the drums, tearing it up. Yeah, I was. Not Chris Fletcher-Pole, but I yeah, was. No. <laughs> Probably breaking but, sticks. But Chris, Chris, I remember when I, when I, the first day I went there, um, they introduced me and Teresa to him and I told him I was a felon. He goes, awesome. And I, and I, and I, to, I was taken aback by that. I was like, he didn't look down on me. He didn't like, like, Oh, you're a felon. Oh, what'd you do? He was like, awesome. We got a lot of people in here that, that kind of need that type of perspective. And, and man, he, I think it was like six months later, he had me on stage preaching um, because I had an interesting story and I could share it well. And, and I'll, I'll never forget him for that because, like, that started everything for me to, to be able to be welcomed back into a church with open arms and be given responsibilities. And, and, and you know, I, I love him for that. And it was his wife that went to a Bible study with my current boss's wife. And my current boss was looking for a part-time um, juvenile prison minister, right? And... Chris, not, not that you're the juvenile, but yeah. that you're ministering to juveniles. Somebody that can relate mentally with the juvenile. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so they, they, um, Chris's wife was like, Hey, I've got 
the perfect guy. He just got out of jail. He's amazing. He preaches. So they connected us. I interviewed a couple times. I got the job. And back then, this was like in 2016, 2015, um, we were just doing, um, in the ministry, we were just doing in-facility prison ministry, right? So we would go to a juvenile detention center and do Bible studies. That's all we would do. And that was just, that was your role? Was And is this what ultimately became Jail to Jobs and Innovative Ministries? 100%. So it okay. started ten, um, in 2009. Um, okay. 2010, 2009, 2010. And it was just a juvenile prison ministry because the juveniles, they, the government or county or whatever doesn't want to pay for a chaplain. They don't, they don't get any other, like they weren't getting religious services really at the time. And so they were welcoming volunteers to come in and do Bible studies to provide them with that religious opportunity. So it was great for us because we could go in and share the gospel. We could encourage the kids. We could give them a little bit of our backstory, what we learned how we messed up and how they can keep growing. And we would see a lot of kids really truly want to change. Like they're like, man, I hate breaking the law. I hate stealing cars. I hate selling drugs. I don't want to do that no more. But as soon as they got out, they went back to the same crappy support structure, the same crappy neighborhood, the same crappy group of friends that they're hanging around with all the time. And guess what? They're going to do the same crappy actions, right? If you don't change those things, you're going to repeat the process over and over again. And then we would see them come back to prison. Well, I mean, even if people aren't understanding the connection, think about where the kids are when they have that epiphany of like, I don't want to do this anymore. They've been pulled out of their situation so they can think a little bit clearer. And then they go back to the situation and they're just submerged by it again. Just don't call it jailhouse religion. Right. And I tell them, I was like, Jailhouse religion is a real thing. Like that's a, that's a phenomenon that happens in jail for a reason. And what does it take for a man or woman to, to give their life to Christ or to God, right? What does it take? You have to hear him. You have to have a moment where you hear him speaking to you in some way, whether it's through action or words or, you know, that inner voice inside of you, the spirit just telling you and you knowing it, you have to hear from him. But what do we have in the world today? Cell phones, Netflix, television, YouTube, um, Instagram, like everything is constant stimulation, constant noise, constant background noise. You, the kids today, and even me back then, we couldn't hear God because of all of the commotion. You put a kid in prison or in jail where it's quiet and he doesn't have a phone and he doesn't really like to read, what's he going to do? He's going to think. And it's that moment of thought and that moment of clarity where God is just yelling all of the things he's been wanting to tell this kid. And that kid thinks it's him having a discussion with himself, right? A consciousness or whatever. But really what he's doing is he's listening and hearing the creator of the universe tell him, you are not created for this stuff. You were created for something completely different. And that's when the kid's like, I don't want to do this anymore, right? And they want to change and they mean it. But then they go back to the distractions and they forget that voice. They forget that impression. They forget that. And in the Bible, you see it all throughout the Bible. Anytime God made uh, an impact in um, someone's life, immediately he told them to build a temple, like a, a, sta- a stack of stones even. Like build a monument. Yeah, an altar. Remember this. When I came and saved you from this. And the reason why is because we have 
short memories when it comes to spiritual things. We have short memories about a lot of stuff, like walking from one room to the other and then forgetting why we were in there. For sure. Yeah. So, so when I, when we started doing this juvenile prison ministry, the, my boss, Chris Haskins, um, he was the founder CEO. He started, he started saying, so why are these kids coming back? And I'll tell him what I would find out. And he's like, we need for them to contact us when they get out so that they can continue to hear this conversation. They can continue to get this positive encouragement. And I was like, okay, cool. He's like, what can we do? And I'm like, I don't know, a video game tournament, pizza night, you know, all the kind of like, hey, just come hang out at our place. But the kids are like, no, that's kind of lame. You know what I mean? Like, we don't want to come hang out with church people because they're out in the streets hanging with their boys and they don't want to tell their boys, oh, I'm going to go to this church thing where they're going to serve us some pizza. They're like, man, you're soft, bro. Right? So we couldn't draw them in that way. So Chris was like, what, what can we do? I was like, boss, we got to pay them to show up. If I offered them $20, they'd show up. And he's like, well, I'm not <laughs> just giving no kid no money. He's like, could we make something and then sell it? And I was like, well, I do have a woodworking background. Maybe we can make like some Etsy sign types, signs t- type stuff, like the stuff hanging on my wall in the back, right? Like yeah. some type of art that's made out of wood that you do a little painting on and you can turn around and sell it to somebody. So we started employing kids right out of jail into the, so that they would come to the reentry center that was at 12th and Chacon, right? Back, it was back in the day, man. 12th and Chacon, baby. Yeah. <laughs> East Austin, uh, definitely ghetto. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some interesting stuff going on over there. And so we would have them come in and make this stuff, sell the stuff. They would get paid every week, and they would keep coming back. And before long, we saw them improve in woodworking skills, improve in consistency, improve mentally, and also, like, be encouraged by, like, I built something. I did something. I earned this money. <sighs> Excuse me. So they would, they would, they would start to grow. And real quickly we realized that these kids weren't going back to jail like they would be with us for like six months and not reincarcerate whereas before they'd be out two weeks and get locked back up and in two weeks and get locked back up and and we were like wow this actually works and so chris he's kind of like this uh big picture visionary kind of guy he's like well let's make a program we need to make it to where we can reproduce this in other places where we can make it sustainable so that, because early on we were paying the kids, let's say $9 an hour, right? They were doing about $2 an hour worth of work, right? So real good for business. That's great. That's a bad (laughs) business model. I don't care who you are. That's a bad business model. So we're like, well, we have to figure out how to make it sustainable to where we're not having to front 80% losses in revenue because being a, you know, a organization that believes in God you're not going to get a lot of federal grant money, state grant money. So it's all private donations. And so we had to work real hard to raise that, the the money for this. Luckily people can see the value in teaching a guy to fish versus giving them a fish. Right. So I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to teach you how to make money and, and make money on your own so that you can be a successful employee. It lowers the crime rate. It lowers taxes spent on incarcerating kids um, there's millions of benefits um, that are that you'll never really even see. So people were behind it. Like when I tell them what we do, we have young men and women coming out of lockup, get trained, equipped, 
to be successful in the workforce and in life, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's a great idea, right? So nobody's against what we're doing. So we found a lot of people that wanted to, to help us and support us. Um, and then we started to grow this program. And, you know, it was really just me and him on staff at the time. And I think we have like 14 employees now. Um, and we employed 220 kids last year. Um, so with a job. And so that, that, that all happened in three years, three and a half years. I mean, I was, one of the questions was going to be what successes has Jill to jobs had. That's, that's a big one. Well, and right there, and, and those numbers sound cool and all that. It's a lot of, listen, it's a lot of kids and it's a lot of kids with a lot of issues. Um, these are kids that can't hold a job at Taco Bell because they don't, they don't know how to like be respectful. They don't know how to pass an interview. They don't know how to um, deal with work conflict, right? Because somebody talks smack to you, they're just going to fight them and then they lose the job. And then they're like, oh, that, that, that manager fired me because this guy started a fight. I'm like, well, did you hit the guy? Yeah, I hit him, but he started it. I'm like, well, you can't fight at work. <laughs> you, you can't fight at work. Like, you're going to get fired. And it, that, that's just like about the environment you grow up in, you know, like your, your set of rules in your head is definitely the whole like nurture, you know, the nature versus nurture. Are you born genetically with it? Or is it like instilled in you from birth in the environment you're in? And it, I just, I know that as I've grown older and I've gotten to know people from different areas of the country or the world or whatever, like you realize, Oh, a lot of the way I think in the way that I operate with other people is definitely just because yeah. of my environment. It has nothing to do with like some internal genetic and anatomical thing. It's like, no, I was bullied and picked on. So I, I see red when I see somebody right. else being abused. Like I get yeah. real fired up. That's because of my experience. And simultaneously, I don't, I don't like, picking fights i don't i don't like right. getting in arguments because i just not that kind of like aggressive stuff because that's what was aimed at me for so long so i i hear what you're saying and to people that d you're like that doesn't make sense like of course you can't fight on a job well these kids literally don't know that because their environment has told them this is yeah. how you handle and, conflict. and if you do that you'll be you'll have less conflict in the future Exactly, because right. then you get respect and people don't mess with you like you early you know we nobody liked you but they didn't mess with you nope. Like, I, I, no one picked a fight with me when I was in prison. Not one person. Like, it was me constantly picking the fights. But because of that, no one picked a fight with me. I chose when I wanted to fight. But with these kids, like, they, there's, no, there's no positive role models or not enough of them. Sometimes it's a parent that's trying to do everything. Like, work two jobs, raise three kids, support the family. And you, there's just no, no interaction enough to give them the things that they need, the tools that they need to succeed. Um, so we stepped in and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the 220 kids last year. I'm proud of the, the employees. I'm, I'm proud of how much money we've raised, but I'm more proud of the fact that we've reduced the recidivism rate, which is nationally 75% if nothing is done. So I, knew, I figured it was like high, but I didn't think 75%. Jeez. Um, so, yeah, it's 75%. So think about it. Literally, the system's broken when eight times out of 10, the kids or adults are going to come back to prison. So 80% of the time, everything bad happens. And so what we wanted to do is, like, we wanted to lower that recidivism rate because it means that we're affecting generationally the lives of these kids. 
Because if they never reincarcerate, then they get a job. Then they have a home. Then they have a family. And they're with their family. They're there for their families. Versus being locked up over and over again. And they, they never... They, they, then those kids grow up without a, a male role model or a father figure. And then it just, the cycle just keeps going on and on. We've lowered the recidivism rate in our youth from 75 to less than 20, depending on the year and the day. I just, I just got thrown back in my seat. That's bonkers. Like, I, I would love to know what, what like specifically and concisely you attribute that to. Like, break it down for people because I could put it together and I could put it in Micah words, but I need it in Eddie words. What, what is as simple as you can put it? What has caused that 50% drop in recidivism for the kids that you're interacting with? So, when I got out of prison, my mom, my dad, my sisters, my grandmother, they all chipped in to get me back on my feet, right? Like they, they weren't rich or whatever, but they, my grandma was able to buy me a car, like an old beat up. Well, it wasn't even beat up. It was a nice Buick, right? But it was an old Buick. Oh, you fancy. It was a 20-year-old <laughs> Buick, right? But it ran and it was free. My dad, day one, took me to go get my driver's license again, right? I had to take a road test, right? Little did you know, if you don't have a license for seven years, you have to take the test again. So, yeah, well, I, I got a really serious ticket for my first ticket and had to go do all the tests. Nah, again, so. sucker. Yeah, I, sh- I should have been arrested, uh, and they they were laughing so hard at how re- – I'll have to share that in a minute, but they were laughing so hard at how ridiculous everything was yeah. that I just did. They were like, we, like, we can't arre- – like, it's a, it's a subjective kind of thing. It, we, we just can't. Like, this is so over the top. That like we have to share this story. You're gonna deal with this. You You're gonna take they it. Wanted to share their story over and over. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. They're like, you want to, you know about this? Can we let go? Like, listen to this. And it was it wasn't even like hardcore stuff. It was just like, and you did, and yeah. you did. Like, what yeah. were you thinking? So anyway, no worries. Continue. So it, when I got out, I had all of these people supporting me. Right now, they didn't trust me because I was a drug addict. Right. They, and I, I burned a lot of bridges being a drug addict with my family. Like, they didn't trust me. I, I, I was mean to them. I, I was distant. I never went anywhere with them. Um, so, but they welcomed me back in. They knew I was a Christian now. But, you know, you think Joe House religion, and as soon as you get out, you're going right back to drugs. Because methamphetamine is not an easy thing to, to, to jump or to, to, to walk away from. I, I was wondering, how was that coming off of it? Well, I think I was in prison so long without it. That it, oh, coming down off of it, it, it one thing, it's the thing about meth is you sleep for like four days, <laughs> like when you stop using it. And so I think a lot of the detox happens while you're sleeping, honestly. So, so it's not, it's not like on it, the, on the spectrum of like <laughs> drug withdrawals. Worse, worse. I, to me, like it wasn't that bad. Now others may have it, had it worse, but I also wasn't using like ridiculous amounts of it either. Right. I wasn't shooting it. I wasn't smoking it. I was just snorting it. And there's a, it's a slower release. And so it's less euphoric, I think, um, when you just eat it or snort it. But so it, it didn't affect me the same as it could some others, I guess, but I was just blessed. I, it didn't bother me when I, when I stopped using it. But when I got, when I got, sorry to cut you off. I mean, you were talking about uh, recidivism and your family and stuff like that. Yeah. So they supported me. They were there for me. Um, and they helped me get back on my feet to where I, 
within six months, I had a house, a car, um, a job, uh, a, a girlfriend slash wife, right? Like I had all those things and I was well on my way to being successful again. Had they not been there, where would I have gone? The only other people I knew were drug dealers. Like, what if I went back to one of them? Because he, he loves me. He's my boy. He's going to let me sleep on his couch or in a room. But now I'm around drugs again all the time. Like, how easy would it have been to go back to that, right? Because that's the only person that cared about me, the only person that showed any interest. So recidivism happens a lot because there is no safety net for the kid. Because if there was a safety net for the kid, he probably wouldn't be in jail in the first place. Now, kids with safety nets go to prison. I'm a perfect example of that. But when they're ready to change, the safety net exists to help them change, right? I made mistakes when I got out of prison, but my, my family was there to, to support me. Now, if I don't have them, I make those same mistakes, I end up back in jail. So we can lower recidivism simply because we do life with them. We're not mentoring them one hour a week. We see them five days a week, sometimes 40 hours a week, we work with them in the field, like doing construction, landscaping, painting. Um, we have a culinary program now where uh, uh, a head chef. I like, met him. Yeah. The, the chef is picture. like, um, he's opened like 15 restaurants here in this area. And he was like, I want to give back. He's been to prison in the past. He wants to give back. So he's like, how about I open a culinary program? We do meals to go and catering events and the kids make all the food. And we're like, let's get it. That's perfect. And just for anybody wondering, the food is amazing. Amazing. We, we had it for one of our like band events or something like that. And he, he stood up and like shared the story behind it. And I was just blown away. I was like, okay, first of all, this food is amazing. And second of all, I know the people you work with. And that's even Yeah, and I didn't even know you were having that. And when you contacted me, you're like, you need to meet this guy. I was like, man, I, he works <laughs> with us. Trust me. Like, this dude is amazing. So it was, it was, it was eye-opening that we that it works right but it works because we're not in these kids lives momentarily we're in these kids lives for six months 40 hours a week right and then when they graduate the program we guarantee them a full-time job with one of our business partners right and the business partners are people that own businesses that know that if this guy graduates our program he's made a ton of good decisions to do so Right? It's not like, oh, he went to an orientation and showed up one day. No, he went through six months of us like teaching him, grilling him, giving him feedback, crit criticism, encouragement, love, support. And so when he graduates, he's ready for a job. And so the business partner's like, I'll give him a shot. Absolutely. So they, they get these jobs, but we don't cut them off. Like I still, we, at this, this uh, volunteer event today, there were four kids out of the 12 that I've known for three years here helping us do the event. I've known them for four years. There were three of them out of the 12 because we stay in touch. We still care about them and they're like family to us. So how do we lower recidivism? We become part of their family. That's it. And we become that safety net. We become that, that support structure. Um, we help them when they're, they're at their lowest. And because of that, that support, that relational aspect of what we do, they naturally don't reoffend. It's 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 just the way life is supposed to be. You're supposed to have that support structure. You're supposed to have a safety net. 
You're supposed to get unconditional love from the people in your life. But if you're missing that, you'll chase it somewhere else. And typically those kids are chasing it out on the streets, right? And so if you're chasing it out on the streets, then you're probably going to end up in jail over and over and over and over. Well, we want to give them a better way. Um, we, we have a saying here that if a kid needs $500 and his three options are, I can steal a car and sell it. I can sell drugs and make it. Or I could call Eddie and he'll give it to me. Which one are they going to do? They're calling the easiest me. one would be just the call Eddie. One? They're going to call me for the money, right? And now I know. It, no. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> if you call me for $500, I'm going to ask you for six because I'm broke. Yeah. <laughs> but so the, the reality is if you give a kid a better option, he's going to take it. Not every time, but the ones that desire to change, they're going to take it. They're going to take the, the better option. And the better option is you're going to work with us. You're going to learn skills. We're going to do life with you. We're going to mentor you. You're going to be like our family member, man. You're part of the jail to jobs family. But because of that, you're going to be successful. Like it's not guaranteed, but the percentage of success is like exponentially grown when you complete this program because you've made a lot of right decisions. And when you've made a wrong decision, we didn't boot you out of the program. Right. I always tell people you can do the worst thing to us and we're going to ask you to leave. But there's always a way back in. Like if you fight or you bring drugs or you show up high or you're, you're just straight up disrespectful, you have to leave. And if you want to come back, you have to do X, Y and Z. Meet with me, apologize to them, but then you can come back. And sometimes they're like, no, nah, I ain't doing none of that. And then a week later, they call. They're like, hey. Can I, can I come in and talk with you and apologize? And I'm like, absolutely, come on in. And then all, all to me, at that point, what's done is done, and we're going to start over. Um, because that's how you change somebody's future. You know, I, I don't have the same experiences that you do um, to the T, but at least you, you'll resonate with this because it was Elgin. But I remember in Elgin Middle School um, – my first year teaching eighth grade, there was a kid who, I mean, this isn't a joke. He actually ran a gang. Um, and, uh, he did something in my class and I didn't like his attitude. And so I, I said something to him kind of sideways and he blew up. He's like, you're just going to disrespect me like that in front of everybody and lost his mind. And I, I just stood there for a second and I thought about it. I was like, what did I just do? Like, why, why would I? Is he wrong? Like, that was the question I asked in my mind. Like, is he wrong? And do I need to tell him, like, I'm your teacher. You need to show me respect. And I thought about it for a split second. I was like, no, he's not wrong. I, I did. I disrespected him. He didn't deserve that, you know? Yeah. And um, so I, I paused and I turned around and I said, hey, you know what? You're right. I disrespected you. And I'm sorry. And I said it right in front of the class. Because in my mind, I was like, if I disrespected him in front of the class, I need to apologize in front of the class. Yeah. And so I just right then and there, I said, you know what? I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And he just goes, yeah. And in like, he had gone, you know, like level 10 angry. Um, the, the thing that I wasn't expecting after that was guess who I didn't have issues with literally the rest of the year. Yeah. And I, I realized like, okay, I, I'm a, I'm a grown man. I'm apologizing to a 13 year old. 
but is it worth it f- for multiple reasons? Yes. Uh, in, in, and not only that, but I set a precedent in his mind that like, I wasn't trying to one up him as far as respect goes. I was willing to to meet him where he was and, and I was in the wrong. And so I apologize. Yeah. And, and that's it's even so led important. to me apologizing to my teenager whenever I do something wrong. Yeah. Um, I raised my voice the other day. It's something that any adult parent would totally see as justified. But I, I went back to Charlotte and I said, Hey, you know what? Do we tell you not to raise your voice when you're angry? And she goes, yeah. And I said, I raised my voice when I was angry and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she goes, yeah, but can I give you a hug? And I was like, of course uh-huh. you can give me a hug. <laughs> Just melt my cold, my cold heart. <laughs> yeah, man, that's the best. I know we've been, we've been running for a bit and you've, you've kind of touched on a lot of what I was even going to ask you. And, and, uh, I do appreciate that. Cause it, I like hearing your story. Um, and I feel like a lot of people are going to like hearing what you're doing. Um, I would love to just kind of jump to a couple of pieces here that, um, I mean, you, you told successes and you've told stories about jail jobs and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I would imagine that all in all the community, you can just tell me yes or no, if the community response to jail to jobs has been fairly receptive. Cause I, I mean, like once you have stat, uh, statistics behind what you're doing and you have stories to point to the statistics, people are going to be like, oh, well, clearly we need this, you know? You would think so, right? You think so? Okay. <laughs> you think so. No, so here's, here's the reception. Like typically um, the lay person in the community is always like supportive of it. Like, like, oh, that's a great idea. Thank you for doing that. I really, you know, that's, that's a good thing. Like, no matter what part of the aisle you were on politically, helping kids not be re, um, career criminals, it's a good thing, right? Like, if you can keep a kid from becoming a career criminal, everyone's going to like that. So we, we get a lot of support from the layperson. But then when you go to, like, organizations or um, governments, right, that's where it starts to get to be a little bit of an issue because it's, it's a it's – a, it's a, like, if you go to a city and say, hey, would you sponsor this program? And then they start looking at the program, and then they realize, well, y'all are Christian or y'all aren't Christian or whatever it might be. But that religious aspect of it sometimes, like, causes them to take a step back, regardless of the numbers, regardless of what we're doing. Because the crazy thing is, is nothing we do is compulsory. We don't force people to, to believe what we believe. We just so happen to believe this. And if you want to know more about it, I'll tell you about it, right? But they can be wary of the, the religious aspect of it. And I tell people all the time, I was like, I don't care what your religious beliefs are, your sexual preference is. I don't care about any of that. You're, you're welcome here. And we're not going to make you feel weird. We're not going to make you feel different. We're going to make you feel like a family member, regardless of what you believe or think or do. And that's the truth. And, and I try to get that across to people, but they got that a stereotypical over oh, your religious organization. And, and I'm like, man, I don't know if, if that's a fair statement because we are here for anybody regardless of what they believe. And I'm not ever going to force my belief on you, but I will absolutely tell you how I was saved, like tra- transitioned into a successful person. And if you want to know more about that, great. But if you don't, I'm still going to help you to the best of my ability, just as if you were like anyone else, because that's, 
to me, like there's, there's no difference. I'll, you're yeah. going to be part of this family regardless of what you believe. And I that's think that's honestly how it should be in an organization. And, you know, we, we stand by that. Like we've had so many different people and different religious beliefs and systems and sexual preferences come through our doors, be welcomed into this organization as a family member and be successful on the outside. Right. Like we, we've seen it over and over and over again. And so I think that's the one issue is like, I wish bigger corporations would, would take the time to take a look at what we're doing versus say your religious organization. We don't support that. Right. Um, and governments the same way, because I think we found a system that works and it's financially viable and it should be implemented in every single major city in this, in this country. I believe that wholeheartedly. And we're looking to expand as soon as we can into another County in Texas, right? Wherever there's an adult and juvenile facility, we want to be there. Um, so that's kind of what we see it as is, yeah, there's great support. No one thinks what we're doing is bad, but they're also not necessarily wanting to jump in financially or um, supportive of that officially because of that. But I will say the city of Round Rock has partnered with us and we do special events with them. We do um, odd jobs for some of their departments like um, the parks and rec department, um, the recycling center, the, the service center, like whenever they need extra hands to do spring cleaning or, you know, big events, we supply the kids and we basically, they, they, they let the kids work with the city workers and it's awesome. And I, I wish more cities would do that, honestly, because it, it could be a, it could be a really, really good partnership, a city with a jail to jobs organization to where you're utilizing um, this workforce. That's not demanding full benefits, not demanding $17 an hour, a wage, right? We, we pay the kids. We're, they're employed by us. And we subcontract the kids to whatever organization or business that needs the labor so that they don't have to care about, they don't have to carry the, the workman's comp. They don't have to, have to carry the, the benefits and the, you know, all of the, the things that come along with employing somebody. We do that. We have workman's comp. We have insurance. We have, you know, uh, we, we check their w, W4s and I9s and all that. So I think it's a, a really great way to partner. Um, we just need the doors to be open a little bit more. So that that kind of leads uh, segue perfectly to a, a call to action. But before I jump, actually, we'll do the call to action. How can people get in touch with you? The jail, you personally, jail to jobs. Generally, how can they support, get involved, that sort of thing? Because everything you just mentioned, from your own story all the way to jail to jobs, how that got involved, and then how it's developed. People who might be working for those companies that otherwise yeah. would look and go, yeah, but it's a religious organization. So like we can't do that sort of thing and completely miss out on the, the core of what's actually happening. Right. Um, somebody may be listening right now and be like, we need people from their organization to work for us. How can they get in touch with you or jail to jobs or any other person that might be working with jail to jobs? Sure. So um, you can visit our website, um, jail to jobs.com. J-A-I-L-T-O-J-O-B-S.com. And there's a lot of information on there. You can contact us. Um, we, you can order meals to go. If, like, that's a great way to support the program is 
You don't want to cook on Wednesday nights. We provide a four to six person meal. Um, you could pick it up in Cedar Park or Round Rock. And uh, yeah, you can order meals there and the food is cooked by the culinary kids with the head chef. And um, it's, it's a great way to support. If you want to contact me, um, you can email me at Eddie, E-D-D-I-E at gel2jobs.com. Um, and, and just say that you want more information or that you want to partner or um, you want to become a financial donor because the reality is um, the private support that we get from donors is the reason why we're most successful because we can operate the way that's effective and not the way that's mandated by governments and agencies, right? So if you want to help support and change the lives of kids, um, think about becoming a monthly donor. Um, even $25 a month, man, it makes a huge difference when we can plan another program, plan on expansion, um, plan on having more kids work with us. It's a great way to, to get involved. Um, but yeah, contact me at eddie at jelljobs.com and uh, just let me know if you want more information or maybe, maybe you want to be a part of it. Maybe you have a kid that you have in mind that, that needs some help. Um, we're operating in Travis County and Williamson County currently, and, and we'd love to help. All right. I wrote, I wrote that stuff out so that I can add it in the description to this show, jailtojobs.com. You can contact them or order a meal um, or two specific ways you can, or well, order a meal is one specific way to help uh, contacting. You can find plenty of ways to help. You can email Eddie, E-D-D-I-E at jailtojobs.com. Uh, definitely become a monthly donor if you could. Something that I've, in my adult life especially, I've become very comfortable talking about is money because it is the fuel in the car to make things go. Um, and that's, I think, I think like culturally Christians get uncomfortable talking about money. Yeah. And if it's any weird. church ever has plenty of money, like they're frowned upon. Yeah. Um, I think it's more about what do you do with the money than whether or not you have it. And that's, that's where I tell people, um, I had to get comfortable doing the pitch too, right? Like, Hey, we need some support. We need donations. But, um, when you're proud of your product that you're selling, it becomes so much easier. And I, I'll tell people, like that I mean on the street, Hey man, you need to support this, this organization because what we're doing is changing lives. Literally we're, we're saving people from homelessness, drug addictions, gang, gang violence, drug dealing. Um, we're taking them out of those environments, giving them uh, perspective, hope, uh, and, and success. Right. And so when I'm asking people to donate to that, I don't feel ashamed. I don't feel scared to do it. I pull the trigger and I say it because I know that the money's going directly to the programming, directly to the kids. Like if you donate a lot of money, I'm not getting a raise, right? Like yeah. that doesn't happen. My boss is like, no, we're going to create more programming, right? That's what, that's what we need is better programming, um, more kids in, in, and then hopefully another reentry center in another County where we can do even more help. Right. So, or buy more shovels, right? to circle all the way back. <laughs> Bro, there's so many shovels at this, at this location right now. It's crazy. <laughs> it's so I'm just still thinking about the 87 shovels or whatever you mentioned earlier. Like, Dude, listen, don't count this, them. You call just... this podcast 87 shovels, um, bandito biker and uh, firefighter. All, all of the same. That's just the title. <laughs> How 87 shovels relates to meth. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There we go. From eighty, I would love <laughs> from meth from meth addiction to eighty seven shovels. Yes, don't meth around. 
<laughs> well, I, I would love to end with some encouragement. As always, uh, you are naturally a pretty encouraging guy. And um, I, w- I would love to know how, how you want to encourage people that either are on either side of this thing, you know, either they have been incarcerated uh, or they know someone who has been incarcerated uh, or people that want to do something more yeah. than what they're currently doing, which is sitting at home in quarantine, just doing their nine to five job or whatever it may be. How can you encourage people that want to be involved some way, shape or form to what you have going on? So one, let me, let me just tell you that in this war, in this time and age right now, like all I see on TV is negativity and, and just people really angry and hateful towards each other. And, and I'm here to tell you that, let me, let me give you some encouragement there are people out here in the world right now that are loving, caring, supportive, and working with other people to, to give hope. There's a lot of us. It's not just this organization. There are a lot of organizations. Reveal Food Pantry in Cedar Park, where they hand out like 400 meals a week, like family meal boxes, like just huge boxes of food for a family for like, four or five days worth of food. They hand it out every, every day, right? Or not every day, but twice a week, every week, 400 something people every week that they help. Um, and it's just so, there's so many organizations out there that are actually doing good things. The problem is you're not gonna see them on the news because it's not gonna pull ratings. But know that there's so many people out here, man, that are really caring and loving on people, that this world is not garbage. It's not horrendous. There's a lot of horrendous things going on, but there's so many great things that are happening as well in your community. And I would encourage you, if you've, if you've got a felony, you've been to prison, you've gotten out, and maybe you're a little, little worried that, that you're not going to be able to get where you need to go, understand that it's, a, it's, it's not, a, it's not a, a sprint, it's a marathon. It takes a long time to rebuild what you destroy. Um, so be encouraged to know that if I can come out of prison and become successful with the life that I led, anyone can do it. Anyone. And do not be afraid to ask for help, beg for help, plead for help. Um, if I had been stone-faced and not accepted a car from my grandmother, not accepted help from my dad, not accepted clothes from my sisters, then I wouldn't be where I'm at now. I'd be 20 steps behind where I am now. So Ask for help, man. Seek that help. Um, when people come to us looking for help, we give it to them, right? Like it's it's not a it's not a a trick system. It's the ones that asking for help are the ones getting help. So know that you can become successful again. The felony does not stop everything. It makes everything harder. Hundred percent. When you have a felony on your record, everything gets more difficult. But nothing outside of the presidency is restricted from you, <laughs> right? Like you can't yeah. be president. You can't be president ever again. Sorry. If that's what you were shooting for, you can't have it. But <laughs> you can do anything else that you set your mind to. So just, man, I, I just want to give encouragement out there to people that, that all they hear is negativity all the time. There's so much positivity. If you want to get involved and be a part of that positivity, find something like an organization that's giving back near where you live and go serve. I'm telling you. Look, look the, here's the secret to life. We were not put on this earth to take. We were put on this earth to give. When we take, no matter how much we take, we never are satisfied. But the moment you give to somebody, 
The moment you give something to somebody, time, love, effort, money, food, whatever it is, when you give it to them, you walk away satisfied every single time. It's a paradox that is thwarted the, the success of man for many generations. But I promise you, if you want to feel whole, if you want to feel content, serve and give. It, it's the secret to life. The minute I start serving for people, I feel better than when I used to take from people. And I used to have a whole lot more when I took. And I still yeah. wasn't happy. The paradox, is, to put it in figurative language, is if you want to be whole, you have to give away a part of yourself. And, and repeatedly. <laughs> yeah. Repeat, yeah. Seriously, repeatedly. You have I've, to continually give part of yourself to become whole. It's, it's absolutely true. I've, I've told this story, um, so I won't go into all the details this time, but I've told the story on the podcast before where I was having a really crappy day and I called my mom to vent and basically uh, garner sympathy. And it didn't work just so we're clear. Um, but she, she basically tells me to go do something nice for somebody else. She's like, Oh, you're having a bad day. What have you done for other people today? And I was like, well, nothing. I'm having a terrible day. Like, why would I go do that? <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, some, I think it was like Reese's Kit Kats and Sour Patch Kids later, I'd given away some candy to my, my close friends. I was just like, Hey, are you home? Drive over to the house. Which one do you want? And they're like, what? You know, and this is in college, so nobody's worried about your weight, right? <clears throat> and just eat whatever. And then at the end, I was like, you know, that actually did turn my day around. Now the question is, do I want to admit that to my mother or not? Nope, never, <laughs> yeah. never. You must remove this from all podcasts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Clear it out. Um, but anyway. Never let mom know she's right, ever. <laughs> that is against the sun. She knows. You don't have to tell her. She knows. And that's you know, what matters. That is the well, Eddie, I really appreciate you giving up some of your time, especially after a long morning and a long few days, I guess, even prior to the morning. Yeah, all that three straight days of like planning for this. Yeah, and carrying all the shovels once again. But um, I do appreciate your time. I appreciate what you're doing. I've been a big fan uh, from the background for years now, uh, knowing what you do and, and just loving you as a friend, man. So I appreciate you being on this episode. I look forward to us keeping in touch as always. And I'll be sure to make sure people know how to get in touch and how to help. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Micah. Love you, bro. Love you too, man. Well, folks, that was my friend, Eddie Franz, one of my favorite people to talk to because he always lightens up uh, the room, the mood, everything. And so I just want to say again, I, I really appreciate Eddie in every capacity. Um, I want to reiterate what he was saying about how you can get involved easy way to do that is go to their website which is going to be real confusing just kidding jailtojobs.com that's j-a-i-l-t-o-j-o-b-s.com you can go to their contact us section uh, if you want to see what eddie's face looks like they have their team there um, the staff as well as everybody else that's on staff there you can also, if you want to directly support, you can order a meal for four to six people. Uh, so if you got like a, I don't know, a couple coming over to your house or something, or um, a couple friends coming by, order a meal from them. You can support. If you're going to, I mean, honestly, if you're going to go like DoorDash something or pick up from a restaurant anyway, you may as well do this and support a great organization. Let's be real. You can also email Eddie, E-D-D-I-E, Eddie 
at jailtojobs.com, the website I mentioned earlier. Guys, this is super easy. The barrier to entry is so low. You got this. Uh, and then last but not least, we're not shy about it. Become a monthly donor. Give to this organization who is literally changing lives. And I promise it'll be worth it. Folks, y'all are wonderful. Uh, please be sure to subscribe and share these conversations that are happening, the most authentic conversations you've ever heard on a podcast. Um, today was a wonderful story by Eddie. You wouldn't hear it anywhere else. And I, I just hope that you guys are, are liking and subscribing and following, but most importantly, sharing, because that's what this is all about. Y'all take care. And until next time, peace out. <laughs>